Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet on the internet to talk about movies. Um, usually we start off filling each other in on what we've been watching separately, and then we all talk about a movie we watch together. I do want to announce up front that I guested on another podcast in the recent weeks. I Ooh. was on the We Love to Watch podcast, which I've been on a few times. Oh, Wow. We talked about a kaiju movie that I really like called The Extra Outer Space. Um, that's like this like kind of jazzy, cutesy version of the kaiju genre. Um, and it reminds me a lot of what we liked about Godzilla vs. Hedorah when we talked about that on this show. Um, so I don't know. Just wanted to plug that up front. If you uh, can't get enough of my soothing voice week to week, uh, you can hear me you know, nervously giggle on someone else's podcast. What have y'all been up to? Love it. Well... I have not watched many movies, but I did like go to my first concert in like three years or so. Hell yeah. I got to see the Decembers, uh, which is wild because Oh wow. Because it's like, man, I've been listening to y'all since I was sixteen. <laughs> and you just like announced that you're like twenty one years old as a band. Like, oh man. And I was there with Thomas's cousin and she was like oh they've been a band since I was three and I'm like oh I'm old <laughs> so there was that moment but yeah they were I, really good I love this for you I one of my fellow former uh KLSU DJs in diaspora which I guess I guess now I'm fully doxable internet um she hosted on her Instagram story that she was uh, at the December's concert. And so we reconnected and we're talking about that because I, even just earlier that day, had been talking about California One. Now that I oh, have a car yeah! again, I was like, they take a that. long drive with me. Yes. So, yeah. I haven't listened to them much since I was an LSU student. <laughs> I definitely haven't seen them in concert since back then. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it'd been a while. But they did pop up on my on my Twitter feed this week. Um, I guess through someone else's likes, uh, I saw the singer begging if they could please stop playing the whale song live. They did though. <laughs> they did not yeah. play it, and I was like, "Did they finally escape the curse of the Mariners' Revenge <laughs> song?" It was amazing. I was like so happy for them that they did it's not really play it. It's really fun to do the pantomime with them, like when they used to do it. But yeah. I can see how doing that every day for like you know decades would like get really old yeah i was very very excited for them i was like you didn't play it so proud of you you're free free from the mariner's revenge and then while i was thrifting in a state sailing with a friend yesterday you know i have my ipod plugged into the car because that's the kind of man that i am and um, on the bus mall came on which i believe is generally considered like is the consensus among hipsters is their best song Although really? I have a personal love for Bagman's Gambit. What's the uh what's the writer song? I'm a writer, writer of fiction. I'm a yeah, writer. Oh, engine I'm an driver. engine driver. That's also a yeah. favorite of mine. That's one of my favorites. They did play that. I had never seen them play that before in like, you know, the three or four times I've seen them play. Once again, it's been years since I saw them play, so God, on this podcast we love picaresque is what I'm learning. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Got to figure out exactly what year of college that was, uh, because that's probably what it was. Just like that sweet spot when like them and of Montreal and Y would come through Baton Rouge every six months. Oh yeah, for touring schedule. For me, it was just like that was like the right time in high school. 
picaresque was 2005, so it was that borderline. Yeah, yeah, because I'm like slightly younger than y'all. Yeah, that was like my freshman year. I was class of 05 in high school. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I'm like like three years younger than y'all. All right, everybody listening, welcome to the Decemberist podcast. Yeah, the Decemberist <laughs> podcast. Uh, no, so uh, I did go to a concert, and uh, I've also been watching some TV. I have, I'm like, kind of one of those people that's really been following um, the new Nathan Fielder show, show, the rehearsal. I don't know if y'all have watched it, but it is wild. Oh my god! Right. Right? I watched that first episode and my mouth was uh, agape the it whole is, time. It is I so wild. I haven't caught up to episode four, but I've since watched oh, episodes two no. and three. And I was oh, like, yeah, holy it's shit. Wild. So I'm like fully caught up on that, fully invested. It is one of my favorite things right now. I will say, especially, there is a recurring person who starts to appear in in episode two and onward. Oh, gosh. um, Who is really (laughs) going to, um, is going to be a very familiar archetype to those of us who grew up in that, like, evangelical Christianity. And watching it play out on screen is, as you know, a thing that I really love to see. But instead of it being filtered through, like, this is a piece of Christian propaganda about the rapture, it's just a straight-up presentation of, like, this is what this lunatic believes. And I think that you'll really get a kick out of that. Yeah, this is how they live their lives. Um, It's real weird. It's the weirdest. No idea how to put it other than that. And then I've watched the first couple episodes of the new Sandman series, because... I was like, I, w- I read like half of the comics before ADHD took hold and I got distracted with other things. Um, I'll watch this. I, I'm enjoying it so far. You know, yeah. it's a very Netflix series, but you know. I've only watched the first episode, although my Sandman, like, I'm really into it. Not the show, necessarily. Yeah, the, not, not into it. The comic, but, like, yeah. In 2006, I only owned like one uh sandman trade paperback like my journey goes back to 2005 uh again wow what a wow what a weird weird, um 2005 i I got the sandman companion written by high bender from the library because i had heard oh it's you know one of these truly great comics you know and so i picked that up and i read it and it does spoil pretty much everything because it's a companion okay but yeah. it really got into like the literary tradition of it like the things that it was drawing from it was like a thorough academic work about the series and so that made me really entranced to try and check it out uh but at the time i couldn't get any sandman comics through the east Bentridge parish library and I couldn't really oh, afford dang. to get them en masse from the Barnes & Noble at City Place. Once again, fully doxable. Um, <laughs> but there was a coworker that I had who owned the whole series. And then he converted to Buddhism and was getting rid of all of his things. And he gave me the whole series in 2006. And I read it. And I probably read it. I don't know. There are definitely volumes of it that I've read over a dozen times, and I just did my most recent reread just last year. Probably The Wake and Doll's House are my favorite volumes. Oh, yeah, Doll's House is so good. Oh, my God, it's so good. And I've really been looking forward, because, you know, in the past 17 years since I first read them, 
there have been, you know, constant so like, oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's production company has uh-huh. purchased the rights to Sandman. Like, yes. Probably every three years or so. Yeah, every other year. And it's like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah. I genuinely thought it was never going to come to fruition. Um, and I've only seen the first episode so far because I started watching it with my best friend. And then she was just tired that day and we haven't picked it up again. But mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're enjoying it. I'm glad to hear that. That's encouraging. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it's it's a it's a Netflix series, but like I feel like it's a Netflix series in that the comics to me were very like it didn't feel like a straight forward kind of narrative, and I feel like Netflix really kind of pushes that on a lot of things. Well, there's also that translation from you know animation or you know the drawn image to live action. That's like. Yeah. I don't know, like when they made Paper Girls for Amazon or whatever recently, it was like, what are you doing at a certain point? Like the the art the visual mm-hmm. artistry of it is so much of the actual text <laughs> that like mm-hmm. removing that and just making it like a you know, characters in a room talking is just removes a lot of the interesting aspect of it. Yeah. It does feel a little bit that way, but at the same time, you know, Netflix does like to be like fantastical. So there is that and it's nice to have a version of this that has characters that are now played by people of color that are like making white men angry always a plus always for that uh but what have you been watching other than you know also sandman and the rehearsal and also living in 2005 on accident there was one movie that i watched before we recorded last time and i forgot to mention it Uh, Because I was like going through and trying to remember what I had watched. And this one was watched at a friend's house. So it had kind of slipped my mind. And it's very frustrating that I forgot to mention it. And since then, uh, I have watched for our upcoming movie of the month, All Cheerleaders Die. uh, Because I kind of want to talk about the relationship between those two things. But uh, back at the end of July, I watched Jawbreaker again with a friend who had never seen it. I loved it so much. I actually went to Redbubble almost immediately and got a t-shirt with the Who is Violet poster on it because <laughs> I just love it. I love it. And my Cure t-shirt that I wear in the pool because of my shame about my body is starting to finally fall apart. And I needed a new white shirt to wear in the pool. And it's going to say Who is Violet. Um, <laughs> what are our, our as, a, as a group, do we love Jawbreaker? Yes, or like, hell yes. I would put it in the same camp as um, All Cheerleaders Die. You even mention it in the like opening statement that you've sent out for, you know, it's one of the list of things that's, you know, in sort of that canon of All Cheerleaders Die. Yeah, like that teen girl, like bubbly horror stuff. Like, uh, I don't know what else I included in that list. Like Ginger Snaps, probably. You did, yes. Sugar mm-hmm. and Spice and... Mean um, Girls. Mean Girls. Did I include Mean Girls? That's Heathers. <laughs> Maybe maybe I just am thinking that you included Mean Girls, and, but I'm not sure that you included Sugar and Spice, which I think is, is, is actually uh, funny, but I'd have to go back and check. By the time it hits newsstands next, <laughs> next <laughs> the beginning of next month, a little bit cra- Oh, you did mention Sugar and Spice, but also Buffy, Jennifer's Body, uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yeah, all these. But I would put this one along All Cheerleaders Die, where I think it's actually pretty low on that list of like sugary genre stuff 14s where it's like not the most essential one 
Like you should knock out a few of the, like the like five star classics before you get to Jawbreaker, but I think it belongs in that same canon. And I really, I really like the popsicle scene where she's kind of like yeah. making him fillet a popsicle for her pleasure. I found that daring in a way that a lot of those movies aren't always. Like that that scene is actually perverse <laughs> in a great way. I'm not sure that I agree that it belongs at the bottom of the list, though. I'll be honest. I think for me, it's pretty high up there because to me, it's such a spiritual successor to Heather's, which is, as we've discussed before, my favorite movie of all time, that for me, it's a little bit higher on that list. But I do think that those three form a spiritual trilogy, which gets kind of, uh, even though it culminates in Mean Girls, it kind of, um, they get nicer as they go along, almost. True. I I don't even include Mean Girls in that canon because it's not a genre movie, really. And it's not mean enough, even though mean is right there in the title. And also, it wasn't written by a gay man, which I feel like is actually an essential part of the chemistry and what makes those movies great. Like, there's like a sort of quippiness to it that you're missing. Like, there's like a 3 a.m. in the back of the bar bitchiness to Heathers and um, Jawbreaker that's missing from Mean Girls. Yeah, Jawbreakers is just Jawbreaker is just seven years before Mean Girls, and I think that there is. Uh, mean Girls, uh, once again, just happened to come out in 2005. So <laughs> it's a particular nostalgic cornerstone for people of our generation, which is why it's become like so mimetic and so widespread as far as like being remembered on the internet. Whereas Jawbreaker came out um, sort of right in the thick of it, of all of these like 90s horror follow-ups to scream and since this one has rose mcgowan in it i think it gets lumped in with that canon more even though it's not really a horror movie but it does sort of straddle the line uh between the two but if it had come out in 2005 i think that this one would be way bigger than mean girls so much more mimetic you know we would have TikToks of all of these high school girls slow-mo walking down the hallway to iu who just like <laughs> in jawbreaker like jawbreaker is a much more mimetic movie i think than mean girls it just is when it came out uh one thing i did really notice this time around that i don't think i've ever thought about before when watching it is that the sort of love story in the movie between marcia gay uh, not marcia gayhart uh rebecca gayhart and um the i guess supposed like male lead of the movie is so ephemeral and like it's it's barely there it's like a veil because really this is a love story about like violet and elizabeth purr and also maybe a little bit rebecca gayhart and elizabeth purr because like when she has her flashback to remembering this dead friend of hers, it's not like some fun party that they went to or some like really sincere moment between the two of them where they kind of let their guard slip as far as like how much they don't really want to be the queen bitches of the school. It's just Liz getting out of a pool seductively while there's fog, like a Baywatch montage. <laughs> and so... I think that really what's happening in that movie is that Rebecca Gayhart's character was in love with Elizabeth and then she died, but also Violet was in love with her and then she died. So it's sort of the two of them who are both in love with the same woman coming together to ruin the life of the girl who caused that death to happen. Like Heather's is not gay no. because there are gay characters in it. 
it does have the I love my dead gay son. It does have the scene where the jocks like force the nerd to talk about how much he loves cock. But there, no one in it is actually like queer. Homosexuality in Heather's is mostly just like a tool for different people to use against each other. Whereas I think that Jawbreaker is like a lesbian love story. I buy that. It looks like when I wrote about it, my favorite thing about it was it was the gayest movie on that list that we were just referring to. Yes. I guess what I think is gay about Heathers is there's a specific version of sarcasm in there, but it's not in any of the text or the character dynamics. Um, I think that there are character beats and like character sort of sketches in Drop Dead Gorgeous that are better than any other movie that came out that year. I agree. Uh in this house, because of Kirstie Alley's political and religious views, we consider Robin Curtis to be the true Savick. However, Kirstie Alley is a fucking delight in that movie. It's the best performance that Denise Richards ever gave in a movie that didn't have a T-Rex in it. <laughs> and I think that it's a delight. However, I think that Jawbreaker as a whole might be something that I enjoy more because even though there are really great performers in it, especially Pam Greer, but also Carol Kane, and look, all of the girls, Julie Greer, Julie Benz, Rose McGowan, Rebecca Gayhart, they're all great in it. But none of them feel like they're doing particular character beats or pieces the way that there are great moments in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like, Jawbreaker is sort of the Heathers of the 90s, but Drop Dead Gorgeous is like a Christopher Guest movie from the dark parallel universe. <laughs> I think uh, that might be our dividing line. I think I prefer Drop Dead Gorgeous like, by a good deal. Uh, m- maybe minus Will Sasso's character, <laughs> which is really, really not yeah. aged well. Uh, but, you know, any laughter from Brittany Murphy in that movie melts away all my problems with it instantly. Because she was the perfect angel, <laughs> but yeah. uh, that is the only way I can really decide which one which one of those movies is better. So maybe on that canon where I'm throwing all cheerleaders die and Jawbreaker towards the bottom, it's like really um, arbitrary <laughs> and uh, you know not really that important. Like I, I just like that style of movie making, um, and when it's done well and it's mean and sassy, it's really fun. Yeah. I will say Jawbreaker was like hard to find for a while. I remember I found it on like on a DVD at a thrift store. It felt like finding gold because it like wasn't even available to rent um, for a while. VOD. It's back out there now, buddy. Good. That's great. It's got that beautiful um, opening sequence with the actual Jawbreaker rolling down the like dispenser machine. Great oh, opening it's credits. So good. Yeah. Oh my god, the montage of Vi- Fern's makeover into Violet is such a like weird fever dream it feels like <laughs> something out of the wizard of oz where dorothy and the gang show up at the emerald city and they're like we're gonna spin you around in some salon chairs and talk about like psychedelics for a minute you know the, it feels so strange and what is otherwise a very funny but very straightforward movie um i will keep it in the 90s because i'm gonna go ahead and say that the cohen brothers Great watch continues. So now I have now finally seen Fargo. Yay! Which is just as good as everyone said it was going to be. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I had seen sort of clips before. And even in high school, even though I had 
what I would like to think is a little bit more of a refined film taste than most of my peers. I did rent Fargo from Blockbuster and then tried to watch it with people in the dorms. And maybe it was just everyone else's negative reaction to it that like we eventually turned it off after like maybe 20 minutes because no one else was interested. To be fair, I had sold it on being a comedy and everyone else was like, you know, we were a bunch of 17 year old boys. And I think the comedy just like went right past us. Uh, so now I finally see it in it and I really enjoyed it. And now I understand all of the references that were made in the sketches at the Oscars that year. <laughs> and now we're kind of about to get into sort of the run of Coen Brothers movies that I actually am most familiar with. Because the next two will be Big Lebowski, which I've seen, I don't know, a thousand times. And Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which I've seen probably 2,000 times. I'd say that is one of their best. I like I like Oh Brother a lot. Uh, yeah, I was... Yeah. At the December's concert, I was talking to the uh, the youngster again, and she was talking about how she and her uh, fiance are always listening to that soundtrack. And I'm like, what what year were you actually born? <laughs> it's a great country bluegrass album. Yeah, yeah. she was she was saying that uh, her fiance. They're always saying uh, that. They're a man of constant sorrow, and I love that. <laughs> just anytime she has a problem, oh, I'm a man of constant sorrow, and I'm like, oh, good. This is so good. I think it's also that that one was both PG 13 and accessible to a wider audience, which meant that it kind of like, and sort of the country bluegrass element of it made it really palatable to my family. So it was one that we could all watch together. Although even my dad, who doesn't enjoy anything, enjoyed watching Raising Arizona with me about eight years ago. He enjoyed yeah. that one. But within the family, it, it was, you know, that was also a soundtrack that was in everybody's car for like the next three years alongside, you know, the latest album from the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. You know, <laughs> that was the jam. Um you know, so many like in like in jokes in the family are, are just quotations about like, I've said my piece and counted to three. He's done a R U N N O F T. That ain't our daddy. Our daddy got run over by a train. Like, it's just infinitely quotable and like really palatable to like a wider audience too. Is you is or is you ain't my constituency? Um, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I thought she turned you into a toad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been weirdly thinking about that soundtrack this week a lot because um, I started riding the bus and streetcar around because Cece's taking the car to grad school. So every morning on the streetcar on my ride to work, I see um, one of the theaters downtown advertising Diana Krall is coming. (laughs) And uh, I immediately associate her with that soundtrack for some reason. Yeah, as well you should. (laughs) Yeah, and then I saw two new releases. Nice. Um, Ooh. I will start with the one that I think I like to, not quite as much, although it's great uh, right now as we are in August and I've only seen six movies uh, from this year. I expect it'll be in my top 10. Uh, (laughs) Just mathematically um, cannot be uh, excluded. (laughs) But I will say, even if I had seen 20 so far this year, I think it would still be in the top five. It's nope. Ooh, um, this is one of the ones I wanted to bring up, so we're saving time. <laughs> all right. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, Me too. I 
know that you offered me the opportunity to do copy on it since I wrote up uh, Peel's previous two films, and now I've finally seen it as of two days ago. So uh, expect to see that copy sometime. <laughs> uh, what, is, what, what did you think? Well, it's my least favorite movie from him, but I like all of his movies a lot. I think I liked this one more than Us, actually. Really? I didn't like it as much as I liked Get Out. Us is my favorite of the three. I genuinely enjoy Us a lot, but I think I liked this one a little bit more. I think this one, because even though... So they get bigger every time, right? Like, the threat in Get Out is systemic, but it's also, within the context of the actual narrative, one person, and of course the other people who might be looped in, versus like one small horrible neighborhood whereas the consequences of us are like you know national right yeah uh even though we spend a lot of time going around to uh, i love the bigness of this one i love how huge all of the open spaces are there's it's a gorgeous movie cinematically like the photography in it is just just beautiful and i love the bigness of the space and i love the sort of terror of just existing in such a large space. Like I think part of what makes get out, you know, successful is there is an element of conceptual, but not actual safety in sort of a city, right? Where cities can be very claustrophobic to some people and the suburbs thereof as well. And it's not a safe place for our lead, but in a lot of ways, people think of those places as, being places where other people are around and therefore there's a certain element of safety and then us is a little bit more isolated you know it's one family in sort of an isolated house on a lake but there's still sort of a connection to like the larger society that in a way you're lulled into a false sense of security because you think eventually something from the outside is going to come in and put a stop to whatever is happening although you know that's left open to interpretation whereas this one it's so isolated and it's so far out that i it really captures the terror of like big empty spaces and also like the terror of humans i mean it's also great um for what we're going to be talking about tonight as far as like our actual you know, movie that we're going to talk about. I yeah, the very first that. image is a chimpanzee murdering human beings. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, on topic. You know, there is a link. Yeah. I was going to say, and you know, it, Romero's definitely a big influence on everything Jordan Peele. Like, I on haven't anyone, seen. On yeah. anyone who's oh, made a absolutely. horror film since the 60s? <laughs> yeah. On anyone with any taste. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen Nope yet, but any of his movies, you can feel the Romero wafting off of them. So. Really? I think of Wes Craven being like more of a direct influence on Peel in the past. And this movie feels like pure Spielberg and like Shyamalan. Oh. Um, and honestly, yeah. I think like you're saying the scale and especially the budgets have gotten bigger as he's made more movies. I mean, get out is a Bloomhouse movie. It's like very small yeah. scale. It's not, it wasn't supposed to be the culture wide phenomenon. It is. I think what I liked about us was that it got more abstract and the ideas got bigger to the point where it was not a one-to-one metaphor in a very clean way. Um, yeah. And I found that very ambitious thematically and like 
a really good step away from like the sort of metaphor horror genre that Peel launched. Like everyone is still trying to reconfigure things into a get out template all these <laughs> yeah. years later where like, you know, this monster stands for this form of trauma and everything it does is some kind of like tight script, like one-to-one thing. And I feel like us really blurred the boundaries of that template in a way that like was really interesting to me. And I thought like a better movie um, because it kind of gives you more to think about outside of its own little metaphor, like playground that it sets yeah. up. But what happens with this one, this new one, I feel like he got kind of tired of everything he was making, having so much importance in the industry and having so many eyes on it and so much like fan interpretation of every single image that to me, Nope is like him kind of just chilling and just making a fun summer blockbuster thriller, like a fun popcorn sci-fi movie. And that's where that like Spielberg and Shyamalan sci-fi adventure comes where it's like the threat is very well-defined. There is some like metaphor in there about filmmaking and like the danger of spectacle and like getting wrapped up in creating content out of like bigger and bigger, you know, visual images, which I feel like, you know, if there's anything he's wrestling with, it's like his career trajectory in this movie. And to me, the payoff wasn't as big as us because the themes weren't as ambitious, but like, I felt good for him that he kind of just like kicked back and stopped trying to like reinvent genre filmmaking. And like, he's not trying to beat other people at his own game anymore. Like the get out template has taken on a life of its own. And here he just kind of like takes a step back from that. Um, and just like makes a good summer popcorn movie. Um, so I, I, when I'm saying I like it the least out of his movies, I like, I felt like that purpose that was like purposeful. Like it was like, Oh, I don't have to make the best movie ever. Every time I make a film, I'm only three movies into my career. I can just make a good sci-fi movie. Um, and that's what it was. It was like a good movie and I enjoyed it. (laughs) I think that get out was so good that then everyone went into us ready to like, go over every single detail with like a fine tooth comb so that they could be like the first person to be like oh this means this and that means that and all of it is you know these vhs tapes and look i'm not going to pretend like i wasn't part of that either like if you go back and you read my review of it from the time you know there's definitely an element of that at play you know i'm not going to I'm not going to give myself a pass either. Whereas I think that this movie, like you're saying, it was made to be, have a broader appeal. And I think that it does that. And I think that it was made almost specifically to be like, don't, don't try and find too much in all of it. It's still there, but like, don't, you know, it's not mother. It's not oops. All allegory. Um, or men from Lindsay Ellis, where yeah, or men, which I guess is also that you know, um, just also sometimes it's good to just have a good time. Sometimes it's just good to have a, a thing that is there that I guess we won't spoil because um, I don't want to. Please don't. I haven't seen it. That yet. was actually one of my other favorite things about watching it was that everyone was very well behaved with spoilers. We're like, I didn't know what was going to happen scene to scene. Yeah. Even just now, like, saying that the first image is a, a violent chimpanzee, I would not have mentioned unless we were talking about monkey shines, because I didn't even know that was an aspect of the film. Yeah. So it was just cool to go in blind and, like, watch a, like, really solid sci-fi adventure film without knowing what was going to happen. And I, I heard the uh, final trailer 
spoiled like every element of the plot. And I would have been so pissed if I had uh, stumbled oh, across no. that in the wild. Yeah. Ugh. Well, the segue is not a spoiler. All right, everyone. <laughs> it's not a spoiler. Nothing about what I'm about to talk about has anything to do with Nope. I also saw Prey. <laughs> and it was a delight. Uh, has anyone else watched it yet? Not yet. And am I allowed to talk about future episodes of this? Or yeah. Is that, yeah, because uh, that was going to be not this episode, but the next one. Okay, I wasn't sure that that had been yeah. fully decided. Yeah. Is that the plan? Canonized. That is the plan. That is the plan. Okay. We're going to have a Predator movie for Lanyap, Ali's birthday edition. All right, great. Well, then I will reserve my thoughts yeah, for that time. Yeah, but I'm glad to hear it's a delight. And basically, that's all I'm hearing from anyone. So I'm very excited. I have one friend who's very, very particular you can't take if he tells you a movie is terrible you can't take that seriously because he hates everything and that includes like (laughs) nope and before i watched it he was like you're gonna hate it it's terrible i don't know why everybody's talking about it but we all watched prey as a group and he enjoyed that so even though you can't take his um anti-recommendations seriously sorry buddy if you're listening uh but i doubt that you are but if you actually find something good, then you know that it's great. And that was the case for Prey. And that's all that I'll say for now. Yeah. Brandon, what have you been watching? Well, I've been watching a lot of um, cheerleader-themed horror movies because of the All Cheerleaders Die uh, conversation that's coming up. Um, and my favorite so far was rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 1992. Which oh my God, it's so good. I grew up loving... And haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, you kind of hear, like, people say that it's, like, an embarrassing start for, like, a TV show that they love. And I'm a person that never really fell into the Buffy the TV show cult. Like, I would check in every now and then because I thought Allison Hannigan was it's very cute. It's not a cult. <laughs> Stop being a suppressive person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. It kind of <laughs> does feel like a cult sometimes, though. Because I also never fell into that cult, so maybe maybe that's my problem too. You're both being suppressive persons. I'm gonna I'm gonna call the board. If these are Buffy references, they are flying over yeah, my head like a vampire and mine in the is, night. Mine as well. <laughs> SP or suppressive person is what Scientology oh. calls people who speak out against Scientology. My thetan count is high tonight. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I love the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. I'm just throwing that out there. I also as well. It feels like Clueless before Clueless, and then it turns into a Hammer horror movie halfway through. And that's a delightful combination of things. I just love the Valley Girl, like, bubbly cuteness of it so much. And I I can't even imagine a world where this was not an influence on Clueless, which came about four years later. Like, all of the 90s... Delia catalog fashion um, is like so beautiful. Everything is very flippant and fun where it's like got the Joss Whedon quippiness, but it actually fits with the scale. And there's also like another creative team behind the camera that's like dampening it down a little bit. And I just really feel like they struck gold. Like I feel like they were just trying to mash up Heathers and the Lost Boys. And it was like that simple of a genre alchemy. Um, but instead they created this new wonderfully um calibrated like sleepover <laughs> vhs tape uh that like holds up incredibly well uh paul rubens very fun in it as a uh 
vampire who um loves to dramatically die on camera. <laughs> he, uh, he really so hams good. it up in that scene. Um, Luke Perry's cute as the like the bad boy love interest. Stephen Root pops in, which also fits in our Monkey Shines conversation for like a weird as well as side our character. conversation about Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Also that yes, yeah. Just the cast is all great. The '90s fashion is absolutely gorgeous and would fit in. And all the teens who go to Euphoria High would uh, love the lookbook here. And um, if you have any affection for Clueless and for like cheapo like genre movies. There's no reason why you should not love the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Like I, I think it has been sort of like retroactively measured against the show and found lacking. Exactly. And it's not the show. By certain it's, people. It's more yeah. cute. It's more bubbly. It's not the same kind of nerd culture niche as the show. We're like the show. I feel like you're either on its wavelength or you aren't. I feel like the movie is like a genuine crowd pleaser for anyone who loves fun. <laughs> And loves cute outfits, which is mostly what it um, is presenting. Yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, Christy Swanson is politically uh, tainted now, which can kind of make some parts of the movie difficult to watch, especially if you know too much about her beliefs about the world. But I still love it. And I will say that uh, the song that... Buffy uh, is listening to, or I guess the song that's playing, it's non-diegetic during the montage where she's training and she's jumping and she's rolling that like, I ain't gonna eat out my heart anymore. That song, (laughs) it gives me so much energy. It's like a perfect workout playlist song. It's like the workout song that (laughs) and um, anything from a movie about BMX biking. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole like weird genre that was, I feel like really only that one Disney Channel TV movie for me, so... Motocrossed? Yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah, I figured you would be. I guess I could throw in one new release, too, very quickly. Uh, I watched Fire of Love, which I think Allie would enjoy. Okay. Um, We've talked about off-mic a little bit. Fire of Love is the documentary about Katya and Maurice Kraft, who were a married pair of volcanologists who died while filming yeah, a volcanic explosion exactly exactly my stuff documentary yeah. check volcanology check yeah you know when herzog is a competing documentary about the same volcanologist coming out the same year that uh ali is paying attention you know yeah yeah <laughs> that's exactly your brand yeah it's it's an interesting movie because the couple were not just scientists they were kind of these like amateur filmmakers where like they knew that if they got these really stunning, daring images of the volcanoes, that they would get more funding for their work. So they like really worked the publicity circuit hard, and they also left behind this like treasure trove of I believe sixteen millimeter footage, just like tons and tons and tons of gorgeous cinematography of not only the volcanoes, but them posing in like these like self portraits in front of these like walls of exploding lava. And like, they were just completely fearless about recording as close to the action as they could in like images that look like they were green screened. Like they're so amazing that like, it's hard to believe that it was actually just captured by two people on a camera Um, with a little bit of help of like other people on some of the expeditions. And another thing is like, they were just kind of cool like counterculture people in the sixties when they first started. So like the filmmaking that they're doing is very influenced by like the French new wave kind of framing 
Um, so it's like if Agnes Varda was filming a volcano. Um, <laughs> so it has like this like sort of twee like Wes Anderson style framing to it, and um, it's the movie. The documentary is narrated by Miranda July. Um, so oh, also wow. bringing me back to oh, 2005. Wow. So it kind of leans into the tweeness of it in a way that probably will turn some people off because it is very poetic and like sincere, like hard on its sleeve. But like, we love twee on this I do. podcast. Yeah. And I've been really thinking about this year, like between Marcel the Shell and Everything Everywhere and Strawberry Mansion and a few other like movies that I've really loved this year and Fire of Love fits in this. Like, I feel like people are returning to that Michelle Gondry, Wes Anderson style from like the early to mid 2000s and like doing new weird stuff with it in a way that I find very exciting. And I think Fire of Love like, leans into the like sentimentality and melancholy of that era in a way that like really speaks to my filmmaking um like pleasure zones and uh i don't know i love miranda july i know she turns a lot of people off like instantly but i think she was a great choice for this subject because you know it is like a, a tender thing but it is also a cute thing that ultimately has to end in tragedy because we know immediately that the couple has already died doing um, the very thing that we're watching them do on camera. So it's like a it's like the twee version of Grizzly Man in a way. Once there was a man whose prison was a chair. The man had a monkey. They made the strangest pair. What kind of experiment was it, Jeff? What did you do to Emma? What did you do to me? The man was the prisoner. The monkey held the key. You want to be the boss now, is that it? Stop it! No matter how he tried, the man couldn't flee. Locked in his prison, terrified and frail. Jeff, what is it? Jeff, she's here! She's down here! The monkey gaining power, keeping him in jail. Ella, no, don't do it! The man tried to keep the monkey from his brain, but every move he made became the monkey's gain. Did you do that or did she? She did it. That's right, she did it. The monkey ruled the man. It climbed inside his head. And now, as fate would have it, one of them is dead. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to talk about the 1988 George Romero classic, Monkey Shines. In this film, Jason Beige <laughs> stars as a man who loses the use of his arms and legs as the result of a tragic accident caused by a barking dog. And then he uh, gets abused by his mother. He gets abused by his nurse, played by George Romero's then-wife. He gets abused by his nurse's uh, bird. And then he forms a psychic love connection with a helper monkey that changes his life for the better and for the worse. Folks, how much did you love Monkey Shines? I, yeah, I, I did enjoy this movie. So I'm, I'm already kind of just generally on a Romero like wavelength of you know generally like hell is other people and this movie didn't feel like any exception to me because it kind of felt like his life would be better if the treatment of disabled people didn't suck essentially 
Yeah, there's sort of an overlap. You know, they had that, I haven't seen it, but they recently released that like PSA film that he did back I watched in the that. 70s about the amusement park. Yeah. And that's about the treatment of the elderly, right? Yeah, th- basically, I think a um, retirement home paid for that as like a PSA. Um, and he kind of used it as an excuse for, I mean, he did advocate for, you know, people treating the elderly with kindness, but also he used it for like a launching pad uh, to do a bunch of surrealistic dream sequence stuff. So I, I don't know. It's kind of great exploitation filmmaking in that way where like it has a sincere political point and he, he kind of always does in his movies. Yeah. But also it's a great excuse to like fuck around with someone else's money and do weird shit on camera, which he also always does in his movies. Yeah. This one, when I first heard about that like PSA that he had made and that it had been released, I was kind of like, oh, I immediately thought of Monkey Shines just as I did two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, hatching. Because the thing in that movie that reminded me of Monkey Shines is like the sort of psychic connection between the main character and the sort of like animalistic creature that acts out their secret desires and then eventually mm-hmm. takes on a life of its own. I love this movie. I've seen this movie possibly like five or six times. And the only Romero I've seen more than this is probably like Night of the Living Dead. And that's just because it's in the public domain for some reason. And so it pops up constantly on TV and like big budget bargain bin DVD sets. Yeah. So (laughs) that was because like he got a crap distribution deal. I think it was another um, get out type deal where it was never supposed to be as big of a cultural phenomenon as it was. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot of life of its own. Oops, you made one of the greatest films of all time. <laughs> exactly. And now um, you get no money from it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I. this one, I know that this one is two hours long, which can be a burden for some people. And I know that there are definitely parts where it feels kind of slow, but I think it's intentional. Because like, our character's life has kind of slowed to a crawl. And so there's a lot of time that you spend just with him doing the basic mechanical motions of the day like you you have to watch him struggle to like get his wheelchair onto a carpet in real time and it's Mm -hmm. really evocative in that it's like it doesn't cut it down into a digestible easy montage it really makes you feel that sense of time and that sense of anxiety and like that sense of anxiousness about you know kind of sometimes just feeling like you're in the way you know, as people yeah. try to go about their lives around you. And so I think that its length is like part of its thesis. And so I know that that can sometimes be difficult to deal with, but, uh, you know, it definitely, this, this time I did not watch this movie alone and there were people who were present who had a hard time paying attention to it for that reason. But I do think that that's like relevant to how and why the movie works the way that it does. I think, too, the filmmaking itself was not that interesting in that early stretch. Like, it kind of feels like a very old-fashioned form of horror, especially for the mm-hmm. late 80s. Uh, it, it has, like, a feel of, like, a Willard or uh, kind of Bad Ronald, the way you were describing that as well. Like, it almost feels a little made-for-TV 
um, if they huh. weren't throwing out the word cunt. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they didn't have like a very explicit sex scene, uh, which, you know, honestly, one of the oh, best sincere yes. like disability sex scenes. Exactly. I think I've ever That's seen. what I was thinking. I was going to mention that because, yeah, this movie feels very like anti like ableism, super good as far as you know that sort of presentation goes but apparently a lot of people did not see it in the uh, disability rights community because of the poster which is mm. wild to me because it had a monkey in a wheelchair which they found insulting um so that's interesting to me because i feel like if they had watched it they'd be like oh wow i mean a lot of people for a long time considered horror on the same like cultural value level is like pornography. Like, yeah. it, it was just like a cheap genre with no value. Yeah. So to, to make a horror movie about someone with a physical disability wouldn't in, in itself be an insult even without that poster. Yeah. When really the horror is that ableism is awful. Yeah, I was yeah. watching that um, sex scene thinking like, you know, once a month on Twitter, some like rando bot account gets a lot of traction for saying like sex scenes are unnecessary because either the account is not real and the algorithm knows that that's like good for clicks or because um, most of the people you see on Twitter are actually teenagers who watch movies with their parents all day. Yes. So like they, uh, they're they projecting like a moral value on their discomfort. Um, but you know what? You watch that scene. It does not advance the plot really. It's just like incredibly essential to the movie though <laughs> like yeah. i would not remove that scene for the world um and, and I, I really feel like it it adds value to the, like the representation which you know i'm not in any place to say whether this is good or bad disability representation but like i've never seen that before yeah to that level of sincerity in a movie like this which i thought was cool. exactly but also you know there's just generally in the world this like infantilization of disabled people and people in wheelchairs and right. the idea that they are not sexual beings or they're not people that able-bodied people can be in a relationship with. Like, oh, that's problematic. So, you know, it was nice to have that. Yeah. Um, even if I think by the end when uh, he does get his, uh, sorry, spoiler for this movie from the 80s, he does get the <laughs> use of his legs back. uh I feel like it kind of like cuts that sort of message a little bit and feels very too like I have mixed feelings about it also. But yeah. Everything else You're about like it. Fixing I a liked. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say by the end is when I fully got on board with the movie though. Like the wind up is a little traditional and stiff and the actual like follow through in the third act is when this like becomes blissfully unhinged. Yes, and, uh, it does. And movies like Willard and I think The Baby is a good example of like a movie that feels very like traditional and like kind of stiff, but like is actually one of the more unhinged um, examples of the genre. Uh, like I feel like it, it reaches that kind of you know horror euphoria by the end. But I will say I wouldn't say I was bored at the early stretch. I just wasn't as impressed. As I was, like, where, where it eventually ends up. I'll take that. I'll accept <laughs> it. I'll allow it. I don't know. I, I love this one. I love... Jason Beige's performance in this is really astonishing. Like, he really gives it his all. Yeah. You know, whenever he's like, Oh, you filth. You slime. You filthy animal. Like, I feel it. I feel gross. Yeah. All turned on. But mostly disgusted 
He is a hunk. Like, it's kind of amazing he wasn't, like, yeah. in more movies as a leading man. Because he's got, like, classic yeah. beefcake jawline and, like, he's built. I, I was going to say, like, even with the beard, you know. Yeah. He still had that, like, Hollywood handsomeness. Especially with the beard. <laughs> well, yeah. But, like, at that time, you know, beards yeah, yeah. weren't in, like, I guess it's they are clearly now. I don't know. his real beard, too. Yeah. Because, like, if it weren't, they, it wouldn't be that color. Uh, it's not, <laughs> you know, he's one of those. It's got a little red tinge to it. Yeah, where their their beard is like a different color than the rest of their like hair on the top of their head. So you can tell that it's not a fake beard because if it were, they would have matched it better. And I think that that contributes to the realism too a little bit. But yeah, that opening scene where he's like, you know, uh, clearly for narrative reasons it's there to be like this is a person <laughs> person who cherishes their body who yeah. works hard on their body who puts a lot of work into like creating a certain image and aesthetic and like you know uh, proportion uh, so that when he loses it we have that feeling of it but he's like really like cut in this it's yeah pretty stunning and then to watch his body remain that sort of like studly while he's unable to use it and especially like when we see him being vulnerable, like when he's just hanging in his um, bathing up and down apparatus thing, it really ratchets up like the the empathy that you feel for him and his vulnerability. Uh, going back to that, like uh, you slime, you filth speech and like, you know, where the movie ends up. I, I do think the filmmaking gets more exciting towards it that. It does. End too. It starts with the uh, psychic link to the monkey somewhere in the middle where, like, you start to get those, like, evil dead, low to the ground, like, I was going to say monkey monkey vision. Yeah, monkey cam. But by the end, like, the camera is mounted to the chair and you get, like, the perspective on his face from that angle. And, like, uh, things just become more feverish. And, like, the filmmaking itself, like, actually matches the uh, energy of, like, things devolving in that house um, in a way that was, like, very exciting. Yeah, I... Man, just the, the unhingedness of this movie. Um, can we talk about the terrible science? Because I love it. <laughs> what you mean, where they were just freeze drying human brains and injecting them into monkeys? Yeah, slicing into it their... with a razor, like the uh, garlic yeah. and Goodfellas, like because, really making a delicacy for the monkeys. To obviously, eat. that's how you uh, take brain slices is with a straight razor. Yeah, and somehow that guy is not the mad scientist in this movie. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> and I mean, like, that was the other interesting thing is, you know, for a movie about horrifyingly bad science, it also kind of had a very, like, anti-animal testing message. Which is which, which is an interesting angle for a movie that's, like, abusing animals for utter entertainment. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much Boo... Uh, the monkey actor who played Ella was like tortured on set, but like I don't know. There's been a lot of conversation yeah. around uh, Nope and RRR and Prey about yeah. using CG animals instead of actors, instead of using actual animals. And like, it's probably for the best that we've moved away from this. Even though it's 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 still fun to watch this monkey actor. She's very uh, yeah. charming. At first, when I read the little thing that was like. Yes, these monkeys are actually trained for disabled people by such and such institute. I was like, oh, Helping Lord. Hands Institute. Helping Hands which Institute. I looked up um, before I even watched the movie. I was like, are helper monkeys still a thing? And Helping Hands was like the helper monkey training facility. Like that's wow. the only thing that comes up. And as of last year, 2021, 
is when they stopped training helper monkeys because of it being highly communicable of diseases between yeah. humans and animals. So like huh. uh helping hands now is only involved in the retirement of their trained helper monkeys. Aww. They're like trying to get them like long-term homes and otherwise are not in the helper monkey business anymore. Yeah, cuz I have mixed feelings about exotic animals as pets and you know that sort of thing in general so it's like i don't know how i feel about monkeys as a service animal but i could not help but think like how freaking cute it was to see a little monkey do all those tasks and i was like i feel like a horrible animal lover that i'm like oh look how cute the monkey is doing that so I definitely am right there with you being like, this is so charming. I think that I have mentioned on this podcast before that I only listen to, the only podcasts I listen to are How Did This Get Made and this one, the one that I'm a part of. I think I've mentioned that before. <laughs> uh, and I don't like to necessarily talk about a much more famous podcast against which we have no comparison very often. <laughs> However, I will say Monkey Shines was one of the earliest movies that How Did This Get Made did a podcast about. And I also think it's one of their finest. It is what really turned me on to them. And in that podcast, they do talk about how there were, even though Boo is the only credited monkey, that she was not the only monkey that they actually used in the film. That there were like six trained monkeys. So it's not always Boo. Um, that you see on screen they're they're uh, not just because there are other monkeys in this movie which there are but because uh, boo was not the only animal actor portraying ella i will also say that that podcast contains an extremely long sort of like stream of consciousness monologue slash rant slash lecture from uh, gene diane Raphael about like the presence of animal actors. And this is a podcast from like probably almost 10 years ago where she was really going on about how she had experience working with animal actors through the various adult swim shows that they did like NTS, FSD, SUV, and especially like children's hospital. Yeah. And she was really advocating for like maybe the discontinuation of animal actors in films completely. Um, she kind of convinces herself of that over the course of that discussion. And I think that that's something that if you enjoy our podcast, go listen to that one. But if you're going to give money to someone, give it to us. I know we have no <laughs> yes. um, apparatus no, through which yeah. you can do that yet. But just, just you know, just we need Just email us more. and ask <laughs> where to send the check. Yeah, I used to ask people to email us like questions and recommendations and stuff. And that never worked. Um, but if you want to email us money... You know, maybe that'll work. Maybe that's like a good system. Get so that shows PayPal that you're out there up. listening. Yeah. Yeah. Email us and we'll respond with our Venmos. <laughs> to also circle back on sort of the um, miraculous healing at the end. I think that part of that is also what we are talking about. And this was something that June brought up, which is why I wanted to say that first so that people don't. Uh, comment on our web space with you know oh you're saying the same things that how did this get made said 10 years ago but uh, you know i will genuinely say that she talks about how there's a fear about how medical professionals treat us when they're not being observed by us Mm -hmm. and i think that that's 
also a relevant thing to talk about and why to me even though i have mixed feelings about him getting to walk at the end how it's sort of a you know very sort of cliche happy ending and also maybe does not fully fit in with the larger conversation we're having about having an anti-ableism attitude i think that it is relevant to this because it highlights that he he would not be in this situation if his doctor were not committing some kind of malfeasance and malpractice other than sleeping with his wife. Oh, it's his it's his girlfriend, I think, but yeah. Oh, girl, girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, cuz she leaves him and and Yeah. Although I I genuinely think that she was going to leave him anyway. Oh, yeah. I think that that's I think the, so too. the point of her packing up her things in the bathroom before his coming home party, even before the doctor comes oh, yeah, to that yeah. party and they meet each other, I think. And Presumably. even if she wasn't planning on it, the raw sexual charisma of Stanley Tucci would have overpowered her. Uh, no matter what. Yeah. He was out-hunked in his own home. Yeah. the Tooch. Yeah. And in the How Did This Get Made episode, they, they, they come up with the phrase, the Tooch is loose, which I <laughs> have used in this podcast before without attribution, because I've definitely used it in my uh, personal life without attribution, so... Hey, the freedom of this show having no commenters or audience um, is that you can steal from whatever you want. No one's ever going to exactly. call you out on it. We don't have no audience, right? <laughs> oh! A few dozen people. <laughs> okay, let me let me do some numbers here. I'm going to say something controversial. Um, th- this will get us attention. I don't really care about George Romero. I'm just going to throw <gasps> that out there. Okay. I feel sad now. <laughs> I genuinely understand and appreciate his place in horror and like every time i watch one of his movies i'm always reminded of movies that i've enjoyed that he has influenced better than what i am seeing from the original work like when i watch night of the living dead i appreciate it but i don't appreciate it as much as like the bonkers zombie stuff i enjoy from the late eight from like you know Peter Jackson. Like, I really like Dead Alive a lot. I oh, think it's the, like, yeah. pinnacle of Dead the genre. Dead Alive is great. You know, Night of the Living Dead just doesn't do it for me in the same way. When I'm watching Day of the Dead, I'm kind of wishing I'm watching Night of the Comet instead. And when mm-hmm. I'm watching this movie, I... <laughs> this is really bad. But I kind of prefer Lawnmower Man. Because <laughs> it's, like, a, it's unhinged from the get-go. And it's doing a lot of the same things. But, like, it has no pretensions of being respectful or thoughtful it's just kind of like getting to the heart of the same exploitation filmmaking without any care for its topic (laughs) it's not being sensitive it's kind of just going for it um and it's like actually fully offensive lawnmower man but like the way that that movie like completely goes off the rails is like way more thrilling to me than like watching george romero lay the rails carefully on the ground and like establish that niche of the subgenre like i feel like he's he's really established the template for a lot of filmmakers that like speak more to my irresponsible taste (laughs) that's fair that's fair i do think that you will like the crazies um because i feel like the crazies definitely starts out more crazy (laughs) in a way I think you floated that one as a movie of the yes, month before. I, I have think we should before. bring that back around because I, yeah. I am interested in it. Well, boo! In in my <laughs> head, you know, you know how you have the Star Trek bell that we can't yeah. hear. Well, yeah. I also have a sound board over here in my mind that you can't hear, and right now I'm playing the crone and the princess ride, going boo, 
Boo, boo. <laughs> Bow to the queen of garbage. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, that's fine. You're allowed to have the opinion you have. I'll say yeah. the least interesting Romero to me is his segment of Two Evil Eyes. Um, but I, in general, have really just enjoyed the rest of it. Um, yeah. But I'm not, I, I, you know, George Romero doesn't need me to defend him. Yeah. <laughs> you can have the opinion. His legacy is about like it. set in stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's secure. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. No, uh, that's fine. <laughs> I, I I kind of already knew that because of how much you hate Martin. Oh yeah, that's his worst movie that I've seen. I, I like that even worse than Land of the Dead. That's like really you know it's just an unappealing film. Um, and you know Arabato does it better. <laughs> I'll throw that one out as an alternative. All right, I not even Creep Show, Brandon. Not even not creep even show. Creep Show. I like some segments of Creep Show a lot. I found other segments insufferable. Oh, I'm I'm hearing. I'm pushing my button. I'm pushing my boo button. <laughs> boo, um, boo. Of course, I would say for our listeners out there who are waiting, Brandon, you might want to get that button ready because we, of course, all know Jason Beige from the science fiction classic, The X Files, uh, from the episode Darkness Falls, in which he appears as the park ranger. Uh, that Mulder and Scully must ally themselves with. And he also appears at the beginning of the 1997 film X-Files, later named X-Files, I Want to Believe. My X-Files uh, bike horn has not arrived in the mail yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's not your uh, slide whistle? You don't, you haven't learned the X-Files theme on it yet? But yeah, I, I personally am on a big Romero wavelength, because once again, like his as much as i like people i'm also other people are monsters and nightmares and i think you know that's part of having worked retail for years but you know i love that about his movies is just it's not even just the supernatural aspects of them that are horrible it's also being surrounded by everybody else and having to collaborate with them while the supernatural stuff is going on so I kind of like that in that sort of like realism way and it kind of feels like that here is that everybody's like you're going crazy dude there is no way you've got monkey vision even his friend who's like his friend is gaslighting him into being yes. like yeah no I, I th- there's no way Ella can be getting out through the screen upstairs yeah there's Not, no way no she's way just hell. a regular monkey meanwhile conducting like really poor experiments like I I don't know how he was quantifying the monkey intelligence in the first place what was his control just having them hang out in the cage you know he mentioned a couple of things that they can do and not do but I don't know just bad science bad science all around including the medical science because the idea of a congenital defect just not being even triggered by that accident is so wild to yeah. me. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh yeah, no, this was totally random. Like, I don't I don't know. I think carrying a backpack of bricks and getting hit by a car <laughs> will uh, <laughs> trigger that sort of thing, but eh. I will also say, I guess, I have been mispronouncing his name this whole time. I just looked it up. It's Jason Bajay, not Jason <laughs> Beige. Beige uh, was Jason a read, <laughs> but you actually like how he performs, so maybe not. On yeah, purpose. I mean, I really enjoy his performance. It's it's appropriately unhinged and it's understated when it needs to be. 
Um, but relevant to our earlier discussion, uh, Baget did take a couple of Scientology classes and then later spoke out against Scientology. So nice. just like you two, he's a suppressive person. All hail. <laughs> Barada Nick to you. Um, I also want to go ahead and uh, connect this movie to um, another great director who, you know, I just mentioned Two Evil Eyes, which was Romero and Argento working together. But I also think that we can't really talk about this movie, at least not in this group, without also mentioning Phenomena. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which also has a helper monkey. There's even the scene where they're like both using the red light to be like, bring me that and do that thing. Mm-hmm. So I also like um, beyond the like the monkey psychic link, which is like a really great idea. Um, and didn't I did not honestly see that coming? I thought the monkey was just going to be super smart. I didn't realize that they were going to be like on the same plane of like mental existence together, um, psychically married. Uh, even like there's a sort of romantic tinge to their early obsession with each other. Yeah, him and, the monkey. and the monkey still kind of has that weird like romantic thing going on (laughs) the other strain that i thought was like awesomely excessive was um the fact that there's not one but two psycho bitty characters in this movie there's the um mean psycho bitty with the nurse who hates her patient's guts and then there's the um overly helpful psycho bitty mother who um just like inserts herself into her son her adult son's life Oh. With, to an alarming degree, like yeah. uh, <laughs> just really in his business, cock blocking him and like uh, infantilizing him at every turn. Um, and it seems like that happened even before he, um, you know, was hit by a car. Yeah, yeah, there's there's the implication that she's been doing this his whole life. And the reason that he left Chicago and moved to Pittsburgh, I guess, um, right. was specifically to get away from her and that she is very happy to use this opportunity of him being not uh, able to take care of himself physically to reinsert herself in his life and reassert her control over him. Now uh, there's something that we occasionally talk about here, which is that like, you know, I go to TV tropes a lot and usually when we watch something for, or this podcast, I don't necessarily read the TV tropes page until after we have talked about it because I don't want it to color my perception. But I have, you know, seen this movie many times and read the uh, TV Tropes page for this show many times. And for some reason, you know, I think that what happens sometimes is because TV Tropes is not Wikipedia, even though it is a wiki, a person will get an idea in their head and they'll edit an entry to include multiple references to the same idea that they had from their reading of the text, which I find fascinating. Uh, And the reason that I say that is because someone on that TV tropes page has a very particular impression that I don't have. And I want to ask if y'all do, which is they seem to think that Alan's mother is planning to kill him. What? (gasps) What? After the thing that happens where, He's like, listen, you've done nothing but control me your whole life. And then she slaps him a bunch. Someone watching this movie, or maybe multiple someones, which is why I kind of want to get more of a group consensus, read the text of the scene that followed where she ignored his cries for help, where she is in the bath and she is specifically like giving herself a face mask or whatever. They read that scene to mean that 
his mother was planning to maybe kill him for more sympathy after or that you know that she was somehow planning to cause him further direct harm and not just on continuous like you know uh controlling uh indirect harm if she was going to further hurt him it would be in that misery kind of way where like she appreciates the power that she has over his you know newly disabled body uh munchausen by proxy exactly that's what i would see she might take the chair and the monkey away from him but I, i doubt she would do much more than that all right Thank you for <laughs> reaffirming my feelings about what my interpretation of the film, which did not include that murder yeah. plot. She no. wouldn't kill him. She would just psychologically torture him. It's much yeah. worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the other thing about it is she bases so much of the meaning of her life around like her like martyr complex to yeah. do with him that she would never... I do love their relationship, though, and I think it does add a lot to the movie because, like, it's not a movie that's exactly scary. It's just deeply strange. And, like, that's another layer to it. Like, uh, to the point where at the end where uh, he, I think he goes back to the hospital or something, um, and there's, like, a dream sequence where there's, like, a chestburster jump scare. Yeah. Where the monkey comes out yeah. of his chest. That feels so... I mean, that movie, that moment is awesome, and I would not remove it, but it feels kind of out of sync with the type of horror that this is elsewhere, where, like, like I said, it reminded me of things like The Baby or Bad Ronald or um, maybe, like, something like Spider Baby or something, where, like, the creepiness isn't a scary monster, really. Like, you're not scared of the monkey, exactly. It's, like, more just, like, a deeply weird situation and, like... The family dynamic breaking down further and further it goes along. You're just like, God, these people are fucked. Um, and I feel like his relationship with his mom and his hateful relationship with the nurse really adds a lot to that social dysfunction. Uh, that I feel like, uh, you know, it's a it's a horror of discomfort a lot of the times more than it's like a horror of like I'm scared of that monkey killing me. Yeah, definitely. Although, oh, the tenseness of those last few scenes of him being by himself trying to figure out like how to not be killed by his own helper monkey is so i don't know it's like nail bitingly tense almost i'm like oh <laughs> that she sets up that romantic candlelit dinner like she's shut the power <laughs> off yes but like she sets up a lunch and it's just another stuffed pita I was really hoping it would be linguine with clam sauce since he (laughs) expressed earlier that he had a fondness for that. But I guess that pretty blonde lady never had time to train her to make that dish. (laughs) But okay, even that moment, it's creepy in a way that like in misery when she sets up a candlelit dinner for them to have a romantic date. Like it's still a breakdown of what once was a seemingly healthy like positive relationship it got weird and perverted and dark um it just happens to be between a man and his helper monkey instead of a man and another human being like where it's just like oh god you made this so strange and like almost fetishistic uh this like pita uh sandwich like um has taken on this like weird significance for you and you're being weird about it you strange little monkey (laughs) you know what i mean like it it is like it's still like a social unease and not like a um you know, like a spooky monster. Like I, I, I feel like the monkey's just gone off on a um, a strange tangent, uh, because they're just like kind of psychically bad for each other. Like 
the monkey being around him makes him an angrier person. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. their like obsession with yeah. each other has just like gone off the rails of like socially acceptable behavior. I mean, we've all had a relationship like that. So, <laughs> I do like that that style of movie where like two people are just on a weird wavelength. And no one else knows what to do with that energy, and uh, yeah. the more they're left alone, the worse it gets. Like, I, I think that's a great a dynamic. Grace Gardens. Great Gardens. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. totally. I will go ahead and I guess make my announcement of my news, which is that an era truly ended, and it's tied to Monkey Shines because I you know, watched Monkey Shines the first four or five times I saw it on my own personal VHS copy, which I bought many years ago. And my news is that the end of an era has come. I have sold my tape collection. Whoa. What? I know. Um, the thing is, it's, you know, game cartridges will last longer for the Famicom than VHS tapes will because VHS tapes will not maintain like the magnetism of that tape forever. Yeah. And last year I initiated a project. I had a giant Google sheet that I called the great VHS digitization migration of 2021. And I was finally able to complete that project where all of my VHS tapes uh, that I could not acquire digital copies of, I backed up to my external hard drive as tapes Um and in fact, since that project began, some of them have become available as digital copies, including Step Monster, which will be a future movie of the month before the end of this year, mm-hmm. as well as Screams of a Winter Night, which is a low-budget college student-made horror film made in Natchitoches, which is the town where I went to boarding school and in fact has scenes shot in buildings that I used to go to. Um, which I discovered through bizarre means very long ago in 2003 when I saw the poster for the movie in like a local eatery and had never heard of it. Um, So yeah, I was able to get $140 for all of my VHS tapes. I did retain all of my home movies, of course, as well as all of my Christian propaganda, um, because (laughs) when that leaves my possession, it's going into the dumpster. It doesn't need to... like. The films that I have, I'm happy for them to go to this store and possibly be purchased by someone for whom it is a new discovery. And I am excited for them to take that journey again. Whoever ends up with my VHS copies of, you know, Monkey Shines and Martin and all of the basket cases, you know, Godspeed to those VHS tapes. May you find a good home with someone who you know, gets you for the first time. But, uh, you know, uh, those Rapture movies, they nobody needs those, but nobody needs to see those. I mean, you could <laughs> donate them yeah. to uh, Everything is Terrible if you really want to put yeah. them to a purpose. Because they seem to oh, eat that shit up. That's a good call. I should, you know, uh, whenever they were in town and I attended the live performance of um, their most recent tour. Kids Club kids club they did solicit vhs copies of of jerry Maguire because of course they always do but i should have brought them <laughs> well um <laughs> folks over at everything is terrible who are most definitely listening to this extremely popular <laughs> podcast you should come to austin again and uh i will give you all of the rapture media that i own as well as several episodes of bible man Back to Romero very quickly uh for more up to the date news i do want to note like what movies are on that collection on shutter 
I think the crazies was uh, one of them, actually. Yes, uh, the crazies. Yeah. Uh, his movie Season of the Witch, which uh, Brittany reviewed yeah, for this website. I have also seen that. It's very uh, housewife horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, Monkey Shines is included on there. Uh, also, Land of the Dead, which I referenced as one of his worst movies, and I, I kind of stand by that. And then um, also uh, referenced earlier both Creep Show and um, his rediscovered movie, The Amusement Park, are are also on Shutter right now. And uh, Creep Show actually has like a tie-in to a new Shutter horror anthology series, which I, I believe is also called right. Creep Show. Yeah. Uh, so, which is probably why they brought in the collection, but it's it's kind of cool that they've collected like a, a good little chunk of his movies. Um, not necessarily the most iconic ones, but um, maybe a few weird outliers in there that you haven't seen before and available, you know, relatively cheaply in, in a nice condition. Can't beat it on VHS, though. There's a warmth there that uh, is probably missing from the, the, the cold digital haze of streaming. Yeah, if you're listening yeah. to this in Austin, again, I'm fully doxable now. Go and uh, swing by Breakaway Records on North Loop Boulevard, and you might end up with a pre-owned copy of my personal copy of George Romero's Monkey Shines. Not sponsored.